Love is the lifeblood of the universe. And that sounds kind of hippy-dippy and ethereal, and I'm okay with that. I, I came across that phrase in the book, The God-Shaped Brain, by MD, Dr. Tim Jennings. And the first time I read it, so this is after, right? I got like a degree in biblical studies and I'm, I'm reading this book because my therapist says I have issues or something like that. And I've got this book and I'm going through it. And when I first read that phrase, love is the lifeblood of the universe, I thought that's cute that an MD is trying to do theology, but just leave, this, leave the analogies to the theologians. Because, so his, his thesis, or what he would say that means for us, um, is that in the same way that our bodies need blood in order to survive, and I'm not an MD, but I do at least understand that the blood is supposed to be inside the body, not outside of it, right? Like you need blood, in order to stay alive. And maybe you've had this experience, but have you ever had the circulation cut off to something? You ever had that where like maybe you slept wrong or you sat wrong or maybe your toddler sat wrong on you and then you feel the tingles. And, and what happens in, in the extreme cases of those scenarios where the blood is stopped and it can't go like atrophy cellular death sometimes like death of the like living organism because we need blood pumping through our bodies and i know that wasn't a difficult sell before you came to church today right we're all on board with keeping the blood inside of our bodies pumping the way we need it to pump uh, but as humans we are built to receive and give love we need to receive and give love and push it out into the universe. And I know this because I've done pastoral ministry for over a decade. I know this because I've sat with hurting people. I know this because I've got, as we've already established, a little toddler who needs food, water, to defecate, like, all those things, and she needs love. And we, we do too. And, and anyone that says, because I've also met people where they're like, I don't, I don't actually need that. That's a want, not a need. And that's a lie we tell ourselves to get through the day. The, the, the lie that says we don't need anybody. And that's actually, that's actually a big part of what the hard work that I had to do as I read uh, Dr. Tim Jennings' book was to find the parts of my life where I had closed up. And I said, I don't need, I don't need love. I don't need anyone to see this part of me. I don't need God. I don't need my friends. I don't need anybody to see this part of my life because I had learned that that's how I keep myself safe, was to cut myself off from receiving love in that area. And, and that's true at like the case of the gospel. That's what we celebrate actually. We take communion, we worship God at church because God is the one who sends love out in the universe. So if love is the lifeblood of us as humans, then God is the heart. 
And God is the one who, who pumps and adds pressure and sends the love going out into the world. And once again, I know at the intro, this sounds really hippy-dippy, but when we're talking about the cross, it's going to get really rubber meets the road in a second. And we just know this. We know that love needs to go throughout the universe, and we know that one good deed begets another. When someone's nice to you, you ever had this where you like drive up to Starbucks or somewhere, and they're like, the person in front of you paid for your drink. And so then there's the social pressure. What do you got to do? You got to pay for the drink of the people behind you and just really hope that they didn't order the whole menu or buy for the office, right? There was one time my brother and I, I owed him a cheeseburger because he had helped me move a TV, uh, which is how brothers work. And I drove into the Carl's Jr. drive-thru and I was like, I'm paying for the meal of the guy behind me. And my brother drove up behind me and he ordered and then I paid for it. And when he got up there, they're like, the person in front of you paid for your cheeseburger. And he was like, thanks, took the cheeseburger, drove off. And I've never seen a more depressed Carl's Jr. employee in my life. Because they were like, this is going to be great. We're going to be on Instagram. But, but we know this. And then the, the opposite is true. So like when we send love into the universe, it, it goes out. And it goes beyond us. But what happens when we send brokenness, darkness, ickiness, selfishness. And you know this because you've been cut off in traffic and somebody has pointed a finger at you and it wasn't saying that you're number one. <laughs> but what happens when you're like that? The storm clouds come in and then we pass that on. We pass that on to people around us in our world. And and I think we've all experienced that, and the language that the Bible would use for that is a Bible word called sin. Sin is the brokenness, the ickiness, the darkness, the evil that goes out into the universe. The biblical metaphors for sin. The Bible would say sin is like getting kicked out of a perfect garden, having everything that you need but being cut off and kicked out. The Bible would say sin is like being enslaved to a powerful nation, being oppressed, being made into a commodity so that you are building a kingdom of something that doesn't have your best interests at heart. Sin is when we act like animals instead of humans. We're governed by animalistic needs and selfishness and appetites. Sin is like cheating in a marriage, betraying and rejecting a spouse who loves you. Sin is like a valley of dead bones. And so sin is the opposite of love. God sends love into the universe and in the cross of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, the love of God is revealed to us. It is shown. Because love is not shown by words, it's showed by actions, deeds. Love is a verb. And you've had people look you in the eye and say, I love you, and then do things that said exactly the opposite message. And if we're going to be a church, like if we're going to be people that are shaped by the love of God, 
then maybe we should get our heads around what it meant when he showed us his love by dying on a cross. Let's pray. Father God, we open ourselves to your love. God, we, we say that we are thankful for the many blessings you give us. And God, we are really stressed by things that are putting pressure on us. God, we ask you to show us the right next step. God, we ask you to show us how you're walking with us in difficult seasons. God, we ask you to speak to us and let us know who we are. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, this is the final week of a mini-series within our bigger series. So if you're tired of me saying series in a series in a series, or, you know, it's okay. We're, we're getting there, guys. We're going through Matthew, and then we are in chapter 27. Uh, there's 28 chapters in Matthew. So um, if you have been here through many of the weeks of Matthew, would you raise your hand? If you've been here, right? Um, would you turn that hand around, bend it at the elbow, give yourself a pat on the back. I'm glad you're here at church today. And if maybe you haven't been here through any of the weeks of Matthew, you just pat yourself on the back all the same because we're here for you and everybody needs a pat on the back sometimes. Well, we're at the end of a series called The Suffering Servant, uh, which we took that phrase from Isaiah 53, which is a poem written about Jesus many, 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 many years before Jesus came on this earth, in which it talks about a savior who would be um, crushed for our sins, who would have the punishment that brings us peace would be put on him. And by his wounds, the people of God are healed. And that, that is a poem that I think was running through Matthew's brain as he thought about the events of Jesus. Because this was shocking. Like the disciples have left Jesus. They've abandoned him. Matthew's one of those 12 guys that followed Jesus around and they've all abandoned Jesus. Even Jesus is ride or die, BFF forever. Peter said, yeah, I don't know that guy. And he pieced out because, and I didn't even know this until I read um, a really cool essay on New Testament Christology, which is one of the things you do if you're Andrew and you've got a long flight. But uh, I, I realized that there was no existing rabbinical tradition about the suffering servant triumphing through death. There, there was no context. Like Jesus had no extra books that he could have showed his disciples because there were no rabbis saying the Messiah would suffer and die. And so Jesus had to like get up that hill with the disciples himself. He had to show them himself that the Messiah, his role was that he did not come to be served, but rather to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. And what, what we started last week, um, and what I really want to do, because what I, it's what I think Matthew does, is as we go through the story of the crucifixion, I want to look at just a couple of lenses about each of these details and what they show us about who Jesus is and what he's doing, and here's why that matters. Because when you know who you are, you know what to do. When you know who you are, because of your deep connection to the story of your family, 
to the story of your identity, which I, I deeply believe, each and every one of you, each and every one of us, we are created by God, we are loved by God, and we're given a mission by God to live out in the world. And so let's look at the story in which God showed how much he loved us, and let's see what that means. Because I think that the New Testament gives us a very, a very beautifully nuanced, is the way that I would say it, um, and you might just say annoyingly complicated, but we can disagree on that. But a beautifully nuanced idea of what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. So the very first thing we're going to look at is what, what some theologians call Christus exemplar. And what I mean by that is a really cool Latin smart-sounding way to say example. Jesus is our example in the way that he dies on the cross. Verse 32, as they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon, and they forced him to carry Jesus's cross. And we're about one verse in before Andrew starts going off on theological concepts. But I promise this could change our life. We get our head around this. See, the cross of Jesus, he told his disciples, if you wanted to follow me, you should take up your Model A in the lobby of Dallas Church, right? Take up your Tesla. Take up your swimming pool. No. Take up your cross. And if we worship a God who dies on a cross, we worship a Savior who says that the way up is down, that the last will be first, then what room do we have to complain about when things don't go our way. See, Peter, when he writes a letter to the churches, he calls them, he says, this is the kind of life that God called us to, which might include some suffering. And I, I've, I've sat with people where they're like, I don't know if this is God's will for my life because it's hard right now. And can you imagine if Jesus had that conversation? He's like, taking care of aging parents is hard. I don't know if I can do that. Raising toddlers, it's hard. I don't know if I can do that. Loving my neighbor, even though they put signs in their yard that really annoy me, this is hard. And what's the cross of Jesus? It's hard. It's the way that Jesus taught us to live, though. Because, not just to suffer for suffering's sake, but because we believe in something better. We believe in hope. We believe in a love that goes out into the universe and comes into our hearts. So this guy, Simon, he helps Jesus carry the cross. And when they come to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave Jesus wine mixed with gall to drink. And when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. And after crucifying him, they, the Romans, divided his clothes by casting lots, and they sat down and were guarding him, and above his head they put the charge against him, writing, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Can you imagine right, writing the sign that says, this is the king, and then you nail him to the cross? But in doing so, so they're trying to mock him, but this is one of the most theologically accurate statements we've come across in all of Matthew. This is who he is. There's literally a sign over his head that says Jesus is 
the King of the Jews, the Messiah. And there are criminals that are crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And, and the people who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, you and I have seen that phrase before in the book of Matthew. There's someone else who has looked Jesus dead in the eyes and said, if you are the Son of God, don't suffer. And it was Satan himself in the wilderness. When he's tempting him with bread, he says, Jesus, you're, you're hungry right now, aren't you? You know that the cross is going to be hard right now, don't you? If you are who you say you are, take the easy way out. And Jesus never does. Jesus stays faithful to the way of God. And the chief priests, they mock him. And ultimately, let's, let's pass down to verse 54. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And I'm just going to read the translation, and you guys can say the Hebrew to your neighbor if you really want. But he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because as Jesus dies on the cross, he is cut off from the circulation of God's love. He is cut off. Did he deserve that? No. But he was willing to do it for you and for me. There's, there's a concept here called atonement. Or if we really want to like use the cool word, you can turn to your neighbor and say propitiation if you super want to. Some of you get bonus points. I owe you candy later. That's how that works. Uh, atonement, if we were to splice that word up, the root is that it says at one. Do you see it? At one meant. What, how, what does sin do? Sin cuts things off. Sin severs. But the work of Jesus on the cross undoes that, and it brings together what was broken. It brings it back into one piece. I, I have these foam little avocados at my house, and one day my daughter took a bite out of one of them, and then brought, she spit the piece of foam out, and she brought it back to me, and she said, Dada fix. Dada fix. And here's the deal about foam avocados. You can't put it back together. It doesn't work. But if you imagine, what does God do in the death of Jesus? What is the work that he's doing? It's almost like he takes that little piece, puts it back on, and heals it, brings it at one, so that we can receive the love of God. Jesus is crucified outside the city like the scapegoats in the Old Testament. You ever use the phrase scapegoat at work? Maybe you have. That's a Bible phrase, because they would, they would confess the sins onto the goat, and then them kick the goat out, send it off into the wilderness, and it escaped. It was the scapegoat. And I'm not even joking right now. That's just how it is. And Jesus is crucified outside the city to take the weight of sin. And this is a tricky one, I think, for us to get our heads around because we live in a culture that likes to deny sin 
or we're trying to figure out how to like not be judgmental. I remember I, I heard like my grandmas or like some of my older relatives would talk about people and be like, they're just living in sin. Like I heard that phrase. And I think as a culture, we're like, okay, so we don't want to like put people down. And then we also live in a culture where we try to give people the freedom to choose things. And then we don't agree with all of those things. And so then we live in a culture where we're like, there are no rules. And you know what happens when you break the rules? Canceled, right? That's what happens. You broke the rules. Which rules? The, the rules that there are no rules. We don't know how to deal with this. And I know some people, see, like, we'll say the truth of the gospel, the good news is that Jesus died for your sins. And I've, had, I've talked to people where they're like, so why is God mad at me again? What did I ever do to him? Sometimes if we read this, like in, in Isaiah 53, with the suffering servant, there's a passage where it says God was pleased to crush him. And we're like, that's dark and gross. You're, you're not supposed to like it, right? Like that, you're, that's, that's not good. Why does God have a problem with me? And, and for some, some ways I've heard the gospel and I'm like, this sounds really passive aggressive. This, this doesn't sound like God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It sounds like God hated the world so much he killed himself over it. And what do I do with that? And I think some of that has to deal with less than ideal situations. Sin sucks. Sin is less than ideal. And God is willing to engage with us in the struggle. This week... Uh, my wife and my daughter and I went and saw some friends in Phoenix, Arizona, where it was a chilling 60 degrees sometimes. It was so hard. I know, you guys pity me. But we went and hiked in Saguaro National Park with all these giant cacti. And, and we're walking through all the cacti, and I gave Melody the orientation, and I was like, this is pokey, do not touch it, okay? What happened, guys? So we're, wa we're walking through. Poor, poor thing didn't even realize what was going on because there's jumping cacti, which are the ones that like, if you just brush them a little bit, they come out and they stick on you. And so we're walking down the trail. Melody starts screaming all of a sudden. And I look and she's got these cacti pieces just like stuck on her hands. And she's, she's screaming at me. And how do I feel about Melody? I love Melody. I was trying to have a nice time, like walking through a national park. But all of a sudden, there is something evil that has stuck its claws inside of her. And what do I do as dad? I didn't have any time. I did not, you know, run back to my car or like open up the cool fanny pack with a pair of tweezers and get my stuff. I just reached down and I'm trying to be careful, but ultimately I just reached down and I pull the cactus off. Because what else are you going to do? And you know what happened to me? <laughs> I got cactus all over my hands. And that, that actually made me happy that my daughter wasn't hurting anymore. I was willing to do that, right? I was willing to enter into the brokenness and experience pain to get that thing out. That's what atonement is. That's propitiation for Andrew so loved his daughter for cactus. No, like it's about God 
who loved us enough to come down. My dad says it this way. He says that uh, the message of the gospel is God looking at the brokenness of humanity and saying, well, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And God comes down to fix what is broken. It's not that he had a problem with us. It's that he has a problem with sin. And we don't just get to declare that things aren't a problem. We don't get to brush over stuff. We live in a world that is crying out for social justice. We live in a world that wants sin to be dealt with. And at the cross, God beautifully says, sin is awful, but I love you. God doesn't give us the, the free pass, but he gives us a pass that costs. That's atonement. Well, then it gets really weird, guys. Jesus, he cries out in a loud voice. He gives up his voice. And far away from him, the curtain in the temple gets torn from top to bottom. And that's a picture that Matthew's giving us about what happens when Jesus dies. Because the curtain was dividing the holy place where God's presence was dwelling from the people who had sin and couldn't get in there. And so Jesus is not just our atonement, but he's our high priest. And what does the New Testament tell us about where the temple is now? Where, where's the place where the presence of God lives? Look to your right. That's my right. Look to your left. It's in this place. It's in these people. It's in God's church because we now are the temple of God. We are the place where God connects with humans. And that's a precious thing. And then, okay, here come the zombies. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many. And I, I was reading this one this week and, and reading some, some different commentaries. And I did have to think, I was like, what does this mean? Because I don't know that we've got the extra textual references where they're like, and then a bunch of dead people like walked into Jerusalem. I don't know that I've got, I can't point to the, the document that says that this happened. But I like this one phrase that one commentator used where he says, so if we're going to believe that God can raise Jesus, shouldn't we also believe that he could raise other people too? Like Lazarus, I, I don't argue about that one. So resurrection is also a big part of this. We believe in a God that makes dead things live. We believe in a God that gives us hope for today and hope for this life. When I was a kid, I was taught um, that, you know, you don't invest in things around this, this world because it's all going to burn up someday, right? I remember Sunday school teachers teaching me that. And that's kind of true. There's some fire stuff in Revelation. I'm not entirely sure what to deal with. But there's also resurrection. And and I remember, I really scared the youth group when I said this one day, and I was trying to be provocative, so don't throw Bibles or iPads or anything at me right now. But I, I told them, I was like, so I don't actually want to go to heaven. I want to go to new earth. 
Because what the Bible does, and I know, I'm not starting a cult right now, I promise. This is from Jesus. The message of the Bible is that heaven comes to earth and that God is back with humans like at the beginning of the Bible, and then everything is remade. All the sad things become untrue. Every knee bows to Jesus. Every tear is wiped away. And so it's not that we're all just like, believe in Jesus, pray a prayer, uh, volunteer at Dallas Church, and then get your fire insurance card and hang on to that and hope. If that is our view of salvation, then N.T. Wright says that our life becomes this embarrassing moment between our baptism and our death. If that's all it is. Because guys, we have a mission in this world. We're getting it ready. Jesus is preparing a place for us and we've got a mission to bring heaven on earth, to live as kingdom people, as a little colony. And then I got to stop because I, I, I promise I can back this up with some good like other stuff, but that's a whole other sermon, and you got lunch to go to. Let's keep going. Um, so Jesus is the resurrection, and ultimately, he is the son of God. There's a moment where the centurion, who's witnessed all of this stuff, he looks at Jesus, and he says, surely this man is the son of God. There is so much more going on than just a Jewish carpenter dying on a piece of wood right now. And that is what we believe. That's what we live in light of. The Bible Project says it this way, that the, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so if you get bogged down in the Old Testament, maybe you've done that before. You're trying to read the Bible. You're like, someone said this is how I connect with God. But now there's talking snakes and talking donkeys and anything else that's talking that shouldn't be talking right now. And when we get bogged down in that, the whole point is the rescue mission of God in the person of Jesus. And I've, I've talked to people. People have said, they're like, man, I wish God would have intervened at this point in my life. They look back at their life. Maybe they're struggling with God. They're like, I don't know how I feel about him. I really wish he would have showed up and done something in my life when I was this age, when I really needed someone, someone to come in and make a difference. And what we say when we take communion, when we sing about the cross, is we, be we believe that God did do something. We believe God showed up. And it wasn't the way we wanted him to. It wasn't in the moment that we thought he should. But God loved us so much he was willing to do something about it. And that's something that happened 2,000 years ago that makes a difference on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, even Sundays, guys. And so we are gospel people. We are people who live in light of the good news that Jesus died, and I'm stealing the thunder of the next series we're jumping into, but that he also rose again. And we believe in a God that makes dead things live. And so ultimately, here's the big idea. Here's the bow I would like to tie on all of this is that Jesus died for love. God sends love out in the universe. Jesus is acting in that. God, Jesus dies for love. 
And so here's what we do then. We live for it. We live in light of that. Monday morning, we get up and we go to work because we believe in the hope that we have in Jesus. We're ready. There's only two times, guys, you should preach the gospel. You know when that is? In season and out of season. That's what the Bible says. Only two times. We should be ready pretty much at all times to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. And here's the work that God has been doing in me for about the last year or so. Is I've been trying to find ways to articulate what I believe about God and what he's done in my life that, that means something or can connect with those around me where it isn't you just turn it off because I'm like, okay, so the, the work of God is that I was so bad that Jesus died for me and he loves me so much. You guys have already turned me off because you've heard it. And so I've tried some stuff like this where, where I've said, I believe in a God who created humans to have a really good day off once a week. I believe in a God that thinks no one should be lonely. I believe in a God that thinks no one should be hungry. I believe in a God that is going to make all the bad stuff, no more wars, all the bad stuff become untrue. And do you know what? I've never had an atheist argue with me on those points and say, well, you really should. No. Because that's me being a gospel person. So here's, if maybe you want to develop some of that. Here's just a simple formula, okay? If you want to talk about the work of Jesus in your life. Before Jesus, I was blank. Can you fill in the blank? Before Jesus, I was a workaholic who found his worth in the things he did for other people. And after Jesus, I know that I'm accepted and I'm loved and God made me to do cool stuff. But I'm also valuable when I don't perform. Before Jesus, I was a lonely homeschool kid who didn't know what to do with his life. I was without direction. And Jesus gave me a place to belong. He gave me people to do life with. He gave me a mission. I know what I'm doing when I wake up in the morning. So let's be Jesus' people. Two things. Maybe you need to open your heart and receive love from God. Maybe you've been hanging out at Dallas Church for a while, or maybe you're brand new. God still loves both of you. God still loves us. And maybe we need to open up and receive God's love. And maybe you're saying, Andrew, you don't understand. I've done bad things. Guys, that was the whole point of my sermon. Come on. God loves us, even though we do the bad things. Maybe you're saying, well, but I want to rule my own life. I want to make my own decisions. And I would just say that I have found that submission to Jesus is the path. It's the path forwards. It's the path that makes me whole. It's the path that I've found to get through life. Maybe you're like, well, I don't want to let go of this thing in my life. And I know that God would call me to let go of this. I would say, that's okay. There's something better that Jesus has for you. Maybe you're mad at God because of something that happened to you. And God never says that that bad thing was okay. But he does say, come back to me, kid. I love you. I care about you. 
And so if you're ready to follow Jesus, maybe you're called, you're going to go all, all in. Um, this is quick plug, but on DallasChurch.org, we've got a little site that says, discover how to follow Jesus, and we'll connect you with a coach. Somebody around here that'll show you, this is how you follow Jesus. You take steps of obedience, you become a disciple, or maybe um, your next step is you're ready to go all in and get baptized. We do a lot of baptisms here because that was the step in the Bible when someone said, I'm 100% in, Jesus is Lord of my life, that's what they do. So guess what? That's what we do. Or maybe you're already a Christian. You've opened yourself to God's love and maybe you need to pass God's love on to others. Maybe you need to grow in your connection with the love of God. Maybe God's got somewhere in your life that he's calling you to bring life to that, that dead thing, that hopeless thing, that area of our world where God says, I've got more for you. Come back next week. We're jumping in on a series called Commissioned. And I know we misspelled it, but we didn't actually. Because it's about the mission that God has that we're invited to be a part of. And so as we come into Christmas, as we sing about a God that comes down to earth and loves us, let's be his people. Let's walk on his mission. Let's pray. Father God, show us where you love us and where we're not receiving you. God, show us how you love us and the lengths that you were willing to go to to bring your kids back into your family. God, do the hard work of pulling us out of the effects of sin in the world or pulling some of the dark things out of our hearts. Shape us, Jesus, to be more like you. Amen.